Well, low church, if you would open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 22. This is God's word, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, for I do not want you to be Unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and were 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I, am, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So Father, this very unique passage before us on the Lord's Supper. We want to understand it. And Lord, we want it to benefit us and to inform us and to instruct us on this table before us that we are to take in remembrance of You. Lord, would You give us wisdom and understanding 
so that we can honor you at this table every week and so that we can benefit from all the graces and blessings that you want to give us through this ordinance. And so, Lord, we acknowledge our need for your help. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in week two of this Lord's Supper series, and to the surprise of no one who's uh, been at this church long, it will not be ending today. We will carry this on for one more week. I apologize. I, I really wanted to do it in two, and it's just not going to happen. Um, so we'll come back and we'll do a third week next week. But we take this supper every week. If you're new, um, we do this every week. It's not just put out here today because we do this every once in a while. So we need to understand what we're doing. And it puts a little bit greater burden on me pastorally to make sure we understand biblically what this is. You know, I was thinking, um, for four, 14 years ago, we decided to take this every week. And... I don't want any credit for that, so I'm going to humble myself uh, and make sure no one thinks that was just, you know, we, were, we had really studied it out and thought deeply and had these strong theological convictions why we would do it every week. Um, it was basically uh, a few of us, when I was a 24-year-old pastor, sitting there going, it says as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of him. We like to remember him. It doesn't say how often we're supposed to do it or not do it. Let's just do it every week. Everybody good with that? Yeah. You know, and, and we just started doing it every week. And it was only over time that we realized that's one of the best things, best decisions this church has ever made. And it was kind of accidental and out of a good measure of ignorance. Um, but as we've gone to the scriptures and understood this more, as we've studied church history, we re- we've realized that's incredibly beneficial to this body. And, um, and so I hope that we'll, our understanding and appreciation for a weekly uh, Lord's Supper uh, will even deepen after, after studying these next two weeks. Last week, as you all know, we looked at Jesus' instituting of the Supper where he literally instituted the supper. He ordained it and said, do this in remembrance of me. As opposed to the old covenant that said, do this in remembrance of sin. The old covenant sacrifices and sacrificial system wanted us to remember sin because there was repeated sacrifices over and over. And Jesus says, after I lay down my body and die for your sins in this once And for all sacrifice, now you come to the table in remembrance of me, your sin bearer, who dealt with all your sin once and for all. And so we looked at just the simplicity and the glory of the gospel in the table. That was last week. This week, we're not erasing, to be very clear, we're not erasing what we said last week. We're building upon it. So we do come to the table to remember We come to the table to proclaim the gospel. These are things that are absolutely happening. But I want to push us forward and hopefully build on what we said last week. I want to argue for four things that are happening when we take this. Four things that God is doing for us uh, as we take this supper. It's really a fourfold argument that I'll try to argue from this passage 
in 1 Corinthians 10. So here's the first thing. We need a category for eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink. We need a category theologically for that. So look at verse 1, and let me read these first few verses again. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And here it is. And all ate the same spiritual food, not physical food, spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And they were drinking from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here's my argument. If in the Old Covenant, Israel, God's people, were able to drink and eat spiritually, could it be that in the New Covenant, God's people also eat and drink spiritually? If it's happening in the Old, Paul just clearly said that, is it that we are to do this and the New Covenant also? Look at it. I want to be very clear that I'm not reading anything into this. Spiritual food, verse 3. Verse 4, spiritual drink. We're not trying to understand what that means right now. I'm just making sure we see Paul says that. That's his words, not mine. Spiritual eating, spiritual drinking, that's not physical eating and drinking. Spiritual. Paul's categories. Uh, not ours. We're, we're seeking to understand his categories. That leads to this question. Is that spiritual eating and drinking something only happening in the Old Covenant, or is it also something that's taught in the New Testament or in the New Covenant? And again, I think we just begin to follow Jesus's life and uh, his ministry, and we see Jesus is very committed to this idea of spiritual eating and spiritual drinking. So for example... John chapter 4, the woman at the well. He's talking with this woman, a Sumerian woman at the well. Uh, You can actually go to John 4. I'm going to go through these passages quickly. Um, But in verse 10, well, before verse 10, he asked the woman for a drink. She says, why are you asking me? I'm a Samaritan. How are you even talking to me? And then Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman goes, sir, I don't have anything to draw the water with. The well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself. So she seems to think because this is Jacob's well, there's some sort of uh, maybe mystical, magical water uh, related to Jacob that you're able to drink and it's somehow spiritual. She's thinking of something physical that, that... that Jesus is talking about, Jesus presses her in verse 13 and says, everyone who drinks of this water, that's by the well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. For the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She doesn't get it. She still thinks he's talking about some sort of physical water that she's to drink. And She says it in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and I won't have to come here and draw water anymore. She still is talking about the well. She doesn't get that he's talking about spiritual drinking. Now, fast forward to John chapter 6. 
And Jesus has 5,000 people before him, plus women and kids, and he's teaching. There's this huge crowd, and they're hungry, and so he grabs a few loaves and fish, has everybody sit down, and he begins to multiply that food, as you know, and he feeds all of these people, does this miracle. They have 12 baskets left over uh, of food. And a lot of people at that time were amazed by that. Clearly so. It's a a miracle, right? And then many preachers in our day will will talk about that miracle. He fed 5,000 people, and and they'll get amazed at the miracle. And it is an amazing miracle. But is that why Jesus did the miracle? So we get amazed by the miracle? No. Uh, He says the next day, this is in verse 26 of John 6, you are seeking me not because you, uh, or because you saw the signs and because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And and Jesus answered, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he, that is the Father, has sent. And they said, what sign do you do? Uh, What work will you do that we would believe in you? What work would you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Interesting. Referencing the same thing Paul is in our passage. Fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. Jesus said, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's the bread of God. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He presses it further in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. They don't understand that he's talking spiritually. They think he's talking physically, right? So he doubles down on his metaphor. He doesn't, Jesus isn't concerned if they misunderstand his metaphor. He presses the metaphor farther to the point where they're very much confused. And he says this, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. After that day, his ministry grew. No. (laughs) His ministry shrunk drastically, right? Everybody walks away going, this guy is not a Jewish rabbi. He's no prophet. This guy is teaching paganism. Some sort of cannibalistic paganism. He's telling us to eat his flesh. 
you know, and all these people leave thinking Jesus is crazy. Why? Because they thought he's talking physically. They don't get that it's spiritual. Now, here's what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, why are you bringing this up on the Lord's Supper? That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper in that passage you just read, to which I would agree. But Jesus said all that I just read to those 12 disciples and the big crowd. And then at the, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, who's there? Those 12. You think they didn't have in their mind, okay, Jesus already told us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And now he's saying, this is my body? This represents my, this is my blood of the new covenant? You think they're not making some connections there? So what have Protestants historically believed about that John 6 passage, eating his flesh, drinking his blood? Well, we've believed that it's spiritual. You don't physically eat his body and drink his blood. It represents his body and blood, and you receive it by faith. Catholics take John 6, and they argue for what is called transubstantiation. They'll take the same passage I just read and they'll say at the supper the wine and the bread actually become the body and blood of Christ physically, corporally, so that when you eat and drink you are receiving Christ himself in those elements. What's interesting as a parallel is that the Catholics view the physicality of Christ in those elements the same way the Jews were understanding the physicality Only the Jews ran off thinking he was crazy. The Catholics grab a hold of a Platonic, Aristotelian, Greek category for metaphysics and bring that into the table to try to understand how the bread and the wine can can be bread and wine and look like bread and wine, but actually be the body and blood of Christ. And so they don't run away from Jesus. They say it is physical, and they come up with a way to try to figure out how that works. Now, let me let this lead us to the second point. Unspiritual people always become idolaters. Now, look, before I argue this, I understand that Paul's making a broader application about idolatry than just the Lord's Supper, Um, but I want to apply this to false views of the Lord's Supper, and I would call them idolatrous views of the Lord's Supper, namely what happens at a Mass in the Eucharist. That's my more narrow application of, of what Paul's going to say here. So I'd, I'd love if, if we could all just be ignorant of what the Eucharistic teaching is. I'm not going to allow you to be ignorant. I, I want to inform you because millions of people, billions of people historically have believed this, been taught this. And it's hugely problematic. Um, The Roman Catholic Church affirmed and still affirms transubstantiation. This doctrine was put in place in the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And here's the definition of transubstantiation. The substance of the bread and the wine are miraculously transformed into the substance of Christ's body and blood so that they were no longer bread and wine. Actually, they look like that, but they aren't that. They are the body and blood of Christ. That's what transubstantiation teaches. So that Christ, in the Eucharistic taking of the table, 
is being re-crucified. Christ is coming down from heaven and being re-crucified on the altar of the table. Now, if there's anybody here who is Catholic or, uh, yeah, I mean, I would imagine that there's many Catholics who would say, well, I don't believe that. You're saying that Catholics believe that. I don't believe that. That's good. Um, but the Catholic Church teaches this. This is the teaching. And many, to- many Catholics don't actually know what their church teaches and, and some of these doctrines. And, and so sometimes it's helpful to, to even help someone understand what the Catholic teaching is on this. And it goes beyond this. When the priest administers the table, he believes he's actually bringing Christ down from heaven so that Christ in those elements is being re-crucified and re-sacrificed in the Eucharistic ceremony. And, And... the level of arrogance is, is, is kind of hard. It's hard to comprehend how a priest would think that they could call the, the, the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father who's already finished all his saving work on the cross. He said, it is finished. Sitting at the right hand of God. How I could, as a priest, call him down from heaven and he would submit to me and come down into the elements. It's blasphemous at the highest level. And, and, and it is not the Christ that the Bible reveals. Um, and so I get, guys, I completely understand why many Christians hearing what this teaching is, is saying about Christ and why there would be this overreaction to say, if that's what uh, the Eucharistic teaching is, I'm over there. If that's what they're saying, I'm saying this. And, it, and, and there would be this vast overreaction to what is often called a memorial view. That's what many Protestants have heard, uh, is, a, is a memorial type of view. Um, some of them have heard about transubstantiation and they have swung to this other view. Many have not heard of the Lutheran view. Let's be clear to make a little bit of distinction here. Uh, Luther, during the Protestant Reformation, didn't agree with the the Eucharistic Catholic view, and he taught a different view called consubstantiation. So uh, transubstantiation is that Christ becomes in his body and blood what uh, in these elements. Con is that he is, he's not in the elements, he's over them, he's around them, he's under them. And that's the Lutheran view. I want to argue for a, a, a different view called the spiritual presence of Christ, Uh, This is what our elder statement of faith, the London Baptist, teaches. Uh, This is what the second generation reformers taught, the Puritans. Um, And it's that the body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually. Spiritually. By faith, we receive Christ spiritually so that this isn't merely a memorial service. Or ceremony. This isn't merely just us proclaiming and remembering. Something more than that is happening. But again, we're not going where the, where, where the Catholic teaching is going to the point where we would say he is physically in those things, which, by the way, that's not just a different view of the Lord's Supper. I, I, that that is, is a different gospel. That is a different Christ. 
That is, to use Paul's words, it's idolatry. It's idolatry. This is Paul's whole whole argument. And listen to how he says it in verse 5. How idolatry works. He says, "With, with most of them, God was not pleased. And he begins to explain idolatry. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, that is us in the church, on whom the end of the ages has come. And then he gives an exhortation regarding temptation. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And it's quite ironic, again, the idol, not true Christ, that has been taught, we're talking hundreds of years, in the Lord's Supper, an idol is being put before people. Not the true Jesus. The true Jesus is in heaven. To, to say that He's in the bread and the, and the wine is not the true Jesus. And, and so, to, to think that that's been the dominant teaching for hundreds of years, uh, during, during the Middle Ages especially, um, is, is deeply, deeply troubling um, and undermines the very gospel that we love. Our Baptist confession words it like this, the Catholic doctrine is not only hostile to Scripture, it has been and is the cause of many kinds of superstitions and gross idolatries. So let me give you an example of the type superstitions that 1689, these men who wrote that sentence right there, meant. Um, Philip Shaft, in his history of Christianity, it's called the history of the church, he gives this story that that illustrates this. A a man came up to his priest in some little parish and I guess confessed that he stole one of the uh, consecrated um, hosts, is what they would call it, the communion bread. That he stole it, put it under his uh, tongue uh, and didn't take it in the the service and he took it home and he was a bee, uh, what do they call it, a beekeeper. And so he puts the consecrated host in the beehive because he thought, this thing's holy. This will bless my business and I can get rich and God will bless this. So he takes that consecrated host, puts it in the beehive, and then he brings the priest saying, I did something wrong, something happened here, my bees aren't producing. So the priest goes with him, they open up the beehive. And all of, the, uh, all of the bees have stopped making honey, they've stopped producing, and they're all bowing down to the consecrated host, worshiping the consecrated host. These are real stories like this that have been told historically, largely among those who are illiterate, who didn't have a Bible themselves to know or to check these things off of, but all to do what? To elevate this supper and say, you can be saved if you take it. There's saving grace here. Christ himself is in the elements. And it's done massive damage to the gospel and to many people's souls. And so the early Baptist reformers in their confession, they said this as well, 
Uh, the doctrine commonly called transubstantiation teaches that the substances of the bread and wine are changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood by the consecration of a priest or some other way. This doctrine is hostile to Scripture. And you say, well, how is it hostile to Scripture? And let me reiterate, I'll use Calvin's words. I, I agree with John Calvin and what he said here. He said, um, we don't bring Christ down. I'm going to paraphrase him. We don't bring Christ down in the supper from heaven. Christ came down when he was incarnate. He went to the cross and said it is finished. We're not bringing Christ down. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. What we do when we come to the supper, Calvin says, is we ascend to God by faith. We ascend to heaven. We commune with the risen Christ who is enthroned in heaven spiritually, by faith, not physically. And that's a, a massive, massive difference. Uh, again, to quote our confession, uh, Catholic, the Catholic doctrine is not only hostile to Scripture, but also toward common sense and reason. Now, I bring that up uh, because Paul, in this argument, it's interesting, he goes from talking about idolatry, and then he shifts over to talking about what the Lord's Supper really is, and then he, he shifts over by saying this in verse 15, I speak to sensible people, common sense, reasonable people, judge for yourselves. And then he goes on to teach what, the, what is really happening in the Lord's Supper. So look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Let's just look at that phrase for a minute. What does that mean? I don't think it means just uh, that this is a thanksgiving ceremony merely we are giving thanks but i think there's a consecration that happens uh, when we pray over these items and we put them in the presence of the gathered church this becomes something different than say the lunch we're about to eat now let me explain what i mean by this and i'll actually use the again the confession because it words it better than i'll word it right now it says in this ordinance the Lord Jesus has appointed his ministers to pray and to bless the elements of bread and wine, and in this way, set them apart. Remember, holiness means set apart. To set them apart from a common use to a holy use. Now, and then they're careful to make sure we don't misunderstand that. They say, they do not change form or substance. They are still remain bread and drink. So it's still you know, in our case, grape juice and bread. Still that. But it's not like that if it were sitting on our lunch table and we're about to eat it. Why? Because it has a different purpose. It's set here. We're not, this isn't an appetizer for lunch, in other words. All right? We're not eating this to kind of fill ourselves up before the main dish. It's not for filling your stomach. It's for your soul. It's set apart for a different purpose. And that's what Paul is saying with the cup that we bless uh, the cup of blessing that we bless we consecrate we set it apart for this holy use and for this holy purpose. Now, let me give you a weird passage to help illustrate what I'm talking about here. So, in the next chapter, we're going to get there next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says something very strange. The the church in Corinth are going to take the Lord's Supper. I think every week they're taking the Lord's Supper. But here's what he says to them in verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you take. 
Now, they're taking the Lord's Supper, right? They would say, that's what we're doing. But he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you take. And then he gives some reasons why. You're getting drunk. You're fighting with each other. You're getting all full. You're leaving the person who's hungry to have nothing to eat. Why is he saying, so he's saying, even though you think you're coming and taking the supper, you're not because you're using it to get drunk. You're using it to fill your stomach. You're not treating it as holy. You're not remembering Christ in it at all. Therefore, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's just some meal that you're using for your own flesh. That's Paul's argument to them in the next chapter. Let me push this toward verse 16 because this is where I want to kind of linger the rest of the time. I'll read it first and then give my last point. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now let me read the KJV. I like the King, King James better on this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a, and it says, communion of the, of the blood of Christ? And then it says, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? Communion, interesting word. Could be translated participation. Could be translated uh, fellowship or participating in. So last and final point, communion in the body and blood of Christ. That's what I want to argue that we're doing when we take this. Um, I'm aware, guys, that I'm in uncharted territory for many of you. Okay. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting about the Lord's Supper is a new idea. Even though I'm trying to root it strictly into this passage uh, that's before all of us and we've probably read many times, I doubt many of you have had some of this pointed out to you. I, I get that. Um, and I'm giving a lot of historical quotes. I've quoted our confession. I'm giving these historical quotes. I, I'm doing that because I don't want you to think I just came up with this this week in my study. Like, oh, never saw that verse. That's cool. I'm going to just put that before everybody and kind of I've come up with a view on that. I'm showing you this 1689, these guys were saying this. This is early in church history. And, and what I'm not suggesting is that just because it's an old view doesn't make it right. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying we should believe it just because that's a typical re Reformed position and we're a Reformed church. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I am suggesting is we shouldn't quickly dismiss it. Because what, what I'm suggesting regarding the supper was taught in the first and second century and then buried under the rubble of Eucharistic Catholic teaching for many, many years until the Protestant Reformation where it was recovered and became a dominant view in the church and has always been the view of Reformed churches to our day um, but if, you're, if you grew up Methodist, if you grew up in many Baptist churches, if you grew up um, in any type of non-denominational church or charismatic church, you've never heard this. I mean, this is just not, not taught in many denominations. Um, and so for many of you, this is new. But please hear me out and look at verse 16 again. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break. Is it not a communion in the body of Christ? So whatever Paul means by communion or participation, it's the word uh, uh, koinonia, we often translate that fellowship, 
that's something more than just a memorial. That's something more than just remembering. Some commentators have tried to say, well, communion is, is communion with the body of Christ that's the church. Now, I would think that's a legitimate view because Paul talks about the church as the body of Christ many times. Uh, however, that becomes more problematic when you see that he's also saying participation in the blood of Christ. And so my argument is that if Paul only meant we're communing with the body of Christ and that that means the church, why would he then say, but we're also communing and participating in the blood of Christ? That's a little more difficult to argue around. And so I think when we take the supper by faith, key, 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 key word, by faith, when we take the supper by faith, uh, we are participating in some way in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ. Christ. Now somebody might say, well, verse 16 isn't, does, is it really talking about the Lord's Supper? I mean, we talk about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and we're not always talking about the Lord's Supper, so maybe he's not even talking about the Lord's Supper. But let me just give us our context here. The cup of blessing we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are also one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, listen, same word, here it is, participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything or the idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they, they, they offer to demons and not to God. And listen, and I do not want you to be what? Participants or in communion with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So two things are clear. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says table of the Lord, cup of the Lord. He's clearly talking about the Lord's Supper. And his concern is that they would eat and drink and participate with demons. He's not concerned that they would do something that looks like paganism. Looks like demonic worship. Looks like they're memorializing a demonic practice. That's not his concern. His concern is that they would participate in communion with demons. That's a different level of something spiritually happening than a a mere memorial participation. Henry Alford, um, many of you have probably heard that name. He was a Greek translator, a very famous one, Spurgeon and Piper, and many people talk about how, how indebted they are to this, uh, this man's work in Greek. But listen to what he said. The cup is the seal of our living union with and a means of our, partic- our, our partaking of Christ our Savior. He interestingly quotes John chapter 6, and he said, it is not said that the cup is the blood or that the bread is the body, but is the communion or joint participation in the blood and body. So he's saying when we take these by faith, we're sealing our union with Christ, and it's a joint participation in the communion of Christ. Now, let me drop this down. I know I'm losing people. No, no question. Um. There's another phrase that I think is like a lower level way to understand everything that Paul's saying here, and it's the phrase, means of grace. Okay, we've all heard 
heard this. Many times people talk about means of grace as corporate means of grace, ways that we receive God's grace together, or private means of grace. You know, when you read your Bible by yourself in your room or you pray alone, you receive grace through those private means and there's corporate means. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says. The supper is very clearly a means of grace, which the Holy Spirit uses to bring his blessing to the church. We should expect that the Lord would give spiritual blessing as we participate in the Lord's Supper in faith and obedience to the directions laid down in Scripture. In this way, it is a means of grace which the Holy Spirit uses to convey blessing to us. Now listen, there is a spiritual union among believers with the Lord that is strengthened and solidified at the Lord's Supper. It should not be taken lightly. So when I, let me ask you like this. When I pray, and I will in a moment, the benediction from Ephesians 3, one of the things that I pray in that prayer from Ephesians 3 is fill us with the fullness of God. We pray that. Fill us with the fullness of God. How do we think that we're actually filled with the fullness of God? Well, through prayer, right? We ask God. He gives us more of his fullness of his spirit. Another place in Scripture it says that we're filled with the fullness is as we read the Bible and believe it, receive what God said by faith, we're filled with his fullness. Let me ask you, when we take this supper, do we read the Bible? Do we believe what the Bible says? Do we pray? Those are means of grace. They're they're happening at the table. Okay, all I'm saying is no matter what way you want to come at this, this same truth is before us that we have to deal with. And so I think by faith, through the Spirit, in some mysterious spiritual way, we are with Christ, communing with Christ in this table. Let me give another argument. Uh, what we just read a moment ago, Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's a church ordinance. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then it comes right after that, and Jesus gives a promise. And he says, he connects the ordinance, baptism, with what? I am with you. The promise of being with us is connected to the teaching of the church, to the ordinance of baptism. That's the same presence of Christ that I'm arguing for here. Now, someone may say, well, isn't Christ always with us? I thought the Bible said that Christ was omnipresent. He's always, always with us. Yes, it, it, that's true. But there are, way, there are times the Bible says he draws near. And we can draw near to him or we can be further from him. What does it mean when it says you can grieve the Spirit of God? Or you quench the Spirit? What it, does that mean that the Holy Spirit leaves the believer? No. It means that there's some relational distance that's been created because of sin. What about when it says, when two or three are gathered, I am in the midst of them? What's the context for that? Church discipline. So when two or three are gathered to do church discipline, God's Spirit is present in a unique way that's not with that believer in his pajamas watching football later that day. Yes, Christ is everywhere. Christ is over all things. But not the same presence of Christ in those two moments. 
I was talking to my, uh, my kids the other day. We were doing our family devotion, and we were reading through uh, James 4. And in James 4, it says, Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And I said, isn't Christ near us if we're his people? How do we, what does it mean we're supposed to draw near to him? I thought he already was near. And then I brought up what Jesus says when he says, abide in me and I in you. Abide in my word. Abide in my commandments. Is, isn't that what all believers just naturally do? No. Or Jesus wouldn't say to do it. He says, stay near me. Stay connected to my word. Stay connected to my commandments. Abide in them. Believe them. Obey them. Sinclair Ferguson, let me let him sum up where I'm going. There's a genuine communion with Christ in the supper. Just as in the preaching of the word, when he's presented not in the Bible locally, Jesus isn't literally in these pages, But by the Spirit, He is also present in the supper. Not in the bread and the wine, but by the power of the Holy Spirit as we believe. I've got a lot of other passages. I'm probably just going to skip over these. Let me me try to... When you hold this in a second, you don't automatically commune with Christ just because you're holding that drink and that bread. You aren't automatically going to commune with Christ. You will only commune with Christ if you believe that Christ put his body on the cross for your sins and you, res- and you believe that saves me from my sin. And I'm remembering that. I'm believing that. And I'm believing I have no sin right now because of what he did on the cross. If you hold these elements and have an ounce of faith in the gospel, you're with Christ. You're communing with Christ. Christ is present. And I would argue transforming you. Transforming you. Scripture says, beholding the glory of Christ, we are being transformed. If you behold Christ, even in the elements, it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beholding the glory of Christ, we are being transformed. Not just when you leave and start going and obeying. But even in the beholding of Christ, in that moment by faith, it says we are being transformed. We are being changed. And that can happen and does happen even in the supper. Now again, guys, I I know this is a unique sermon. A little bit lofty. Some of you are like, that's so theoretical and out there in the clouds. Give us Jesus, pastor. And I would say, that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm literally saying Jesus is here. Spiritually. Physically he's in heaven. Spiritually he's here for you. His grace is here for you. His strength is here for you. Whatever you need Jesus to be for you is here for you. That's exactly what I'm trying to argue. We aren't just remembering good thoughts about the gospel. We're with Christ. In some mysterious, I like that word mysterious in this context, in some mysterious way. You say, I just don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand fully what I'm saying either. 
Okay? I, I preach a lot of things I don't fully understand. I don't understand the Trinity fully. But I fully believe that's what the Bible reveals. I don't understand union with Christ, which is the most dominant doctrine in the New Testament. One of the most glorious, beautiful doctrines is that Jesus said, I am in you and you are in me and we're perfectly one. I don't understand that fully. It says it. I believe it. I don't get it fully. I'm putting something before us that I can't. There's mystery in it. I acknowledge that. It, it doesn't mean it's not true just because we can't fully get our mind around it. And I would say, if your view of the Lord's Supper you can fully understand, you probably haven't dealt with all the passages on the Lord's Supper. Because when you do, there becomes some mystery here. And I would argue it's biblical mystery. You know the Bible, Paul used the word mystery and related it to the gospel many times. The mystery of the gospel. The mystery of Christ. He keeps saying that. In fact, he says it eight times in Ephesians. Mystery of Christ. Mystery of the gospel. It's okay to have in our theology mystery. So the Bible creates that at times. And we should seek to understand everything that's revealed, but we should acknowledge that these things go beyond us. Robert Bruce, in his uh, famous sermons on the Lord's Supper, says, the word leads us to Christ by the ear, preaching. The sacraments lead us to Christ by the eye. But they're both leading to Christ, just in different ways. And I don't, I don't understand how that works. Not fully. I, I just don't. Like today, I spent time in, in the Word, reading the Scriptures on my knees in prayer. What would, if you said, what, what do you call that? I would say, I'm spending time with the Lord. How? He's in heaven. I'm in my office just sitting there. How am I spending time with the Lord? Because by faith... We believe that we truly are communing with Christ as we receive His Word by faith, as we pray to the Son of God. There's mystery though. There's true mystery. Let me, let me close and just say one last thing to us. Um, we need to be careful, church, in all of our underst- seeking to understand Scripture not to be reactionary. I just really want to appeal to us on this. Uh, what do I mean by reactionary? Again, many people who, who say what I just said would be accused of teaching the Eucharist. I've, I've clearly said some harsh things about that view. You know that's not what I'm saying. But I'm also not saying that all we're doing here is a memorial service and that Christ is in no way present here. There's no power available or strength or spiritual anything here. It's just good thoughts about the gospel. I'm, not, I'm saying it's something more than that. And, and, and so what I would ask you is, are your views more a reaction to what you don't believe, and so you land somewhere way far away from what you don't believe, or is it coming from passages that are actually telling us what the Lord's Supper is about? And, and, and listen, guys, I, I refuse to let any false teaching steal from me what Christ has given me in the supper. I just, you know, call, call this the Lord's Supper if you want. Call it the sacrament. That doesn't bother me. I think 
Baptists have called it that many times. It doesn't have to mean what some people think that means. Call it the sacrament. Call it an ordinance. But look, there's one phrase I want back. I want this one back. I want Holy Communion back. That's ours. Paul gave us that word communion. That's Paul's word. Communion and holy. It's set apart. We need that phrase as Christians, as believers. That is a pure biblical word. Because it teaches what's really happening here at the supper. Don't let anybody take that from you. Because they may teach something different regarding this table. I think that's a beautiful part of our inheritance and what Scripture has given us. Um, When we go to this table in just a moment, remember, this is not something we prepare for the Lord. This is something He prepares for us. I love Psalm 23. It says, He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Our what overflows? cup. God does that for us. Our shepherd does that for us. Let's come to the table. Let's remember what our shepherd has done for us. Let's eat with him. Amen. Amen. Father, Lord, we don't think that you just gave us this supper to merely eat together as believers, although we we do that. We believe that in some spiritual sense, we're eating with you. We're dining with you by faith. And that you give blessing and strength and grace and help and perseverance in the faith to us as we remember you in your gospel. And so, Father, would you Would you help us to just remember what you did on the cross for our sins and to believe that it was sufficient to deal with all of our sins. Lord, as we come to the table, humble us, Lord, that you would be merciful to sinners even like us. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are in heaven and that you're a merciful and faithful high priest over the house of God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.